BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Simon Mayo and that's Mark Kermode. Now, due to gremlin-related circumstances beyond the control of the production team and indeed the BBC, we've had to split this week's podcast. All long BBC podcasts are being truncated. This is outrageous censorship. So rather than trim down our over two hours of movie and movie-adjacent wittering to that length, we've decided, inspired by Quentin Tarantino, to just split it into two parts. Yes, it's like Kill Bill, but... um, Even more entertaining. How could it possibly be more entertaining than Kill Bill parts one and two, which Tarantino always said were designed as just one part. There you go. But he had to split it in two because it was too long. But uh, so here comes part one. Can I be Irma Thigston? Are we ready to go, Mark? Are you you plugging in? I'm just charging that up. Okay, fine. Here we go. Well, you're all charged and you're all running. Here we go with another very fine podcast from your friends at the BBC. I had a conversation this week in which a famous person, and I'm not going to name them, not because just because I actually don't know whether or not somebody... So here's the thing. Who is it? <laughs> no. So I, uh, I had to do a thing that I had to. I did a thing at the BFI, yes. which was an interview with Tilda Swinton, you oh, know, right. the great Tilda Swinton, right? Because the BFI are doing this kind of great retrospective showcase of all the brill things that Tilda Swinton has done, which mm-hmm. of which there are too many to shake a stick at, at which there are, anyway, many yes. of them. Huh. And then afterwards, like literally, I did an onstage with her for about 90 minutes. And then there was a brief break in which there was a drinksy do. And then she went back on stage and did another 90 minutes with Wes Anderson. So she did two, like, back to back. You know, she kind of waltzed through all this. Which did she enjoy the, the more of? Well, I don't know, because I wasn't at the Wes Anderson. Oh, okay. I had to, I was enjoying... I was enjoying the the, uh, the rail service. No, no I was, oh, I was I enjoying the rail service. I don't I'm, think you were. I'm sure you saw my tweets. I did. They, <laughs> anyway. were, they were angry. No, 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 they weren't. They were factually accurate. Anyway, um, so in the middle of this, in the middle of this, uh, the bit, in the middle of the drinksy bit, which mm-hmm. was truncated because it had to go from one thing to another, a famous person was there who I'm not mentioning simply because I just don't know what the etiquette is of okay. is of this kind of... I don't know where the velvet rope stops and starts. And we were in a room that almost literally had a velvet rope. Actually, nice. it was just a rope. And it was on the other side of the velvet. I don't know. What's the rule with that? Is it everything that happens behind the velvet rope stays behind the... I don't, I don't know. Anyway, so this person said to me, I need to ask you, is it all right to go and see Morrissey? And I went, well, of course not. No. And then I thought, but why? <laughs> what point did I become? Well, it is all right. No, it isn't. Well, you can't just not. You can't just lay down the law saying you're not. I'm not to... laying down the law. Somebody asked me. Is it what? Is it they were right? asking your blessing. So they're almost. They, they were almost saying, "Is it I all go, right with you if I will I have your blessing if I go to see Morrissey?" Yeah, and I said, "No, of course not." So what they should have done is just gone to if they wanted to see Morrissey, just go see Morrissey. Well, yeah, I mean, I you know, obviously, I don't have any sway over whether. In the same way, I don't have any sway over what what's in the top ten. You know, like if somebody said to me, "Is it all right to go and see Blumhouse Fantasy Island?" I can't say no. Well, I can. It's not going to make any difference. It's just I thought it was no. it was a, it was just a strange, out of and context. If, and this is a really fa- is it male or female? Male. Over forty. My guess is yes, because I would, they wouldn't be interested. I'm, in Morris, I'm imagining so with hair. Yes. Are you going to try and narrow it down? Uh, so male over 40 with hair. That's... In, in the acting fraternity? Yes. Okay. Was it... <laughs> this is, honestly, if, you, if he gets have they it, been you, on have, this, you have, they, have to bleep it. Have they been on this show? 
Not that I can think of. Uh, okay. The thing is, I mean, the per- the person in question may be quite happy for. I just I don't know what the etiquette is, and I I I live an anxious life. Was it Johnny Marr? Johnny Bar, Johnny Bar. That's a very good joke. No, and that incidentally, that impression was for Ollie Fox. Thank you. Well, Johnny Bar, Johnny Bar. Tonight on the South Bank show, the Spits, yeah, Odyssey and Bar. Their first album, the Spits. Their second album, Beat. Is murder. Did you ever see that South Bank show? It was my favourite South Bank show, Evs, because I, I loved the Smiths and I loved the South Bank show and I loved the way that Belvid Bragg talked about Bodice and Bar from this bit. It's been a while since we heard the impression. I know. I feel as I've it's, seen the whole thing anyway. Johnny Bar, Johnny Bar. I've just listened to that for the last 20 years. Um, is it, I'm just going to, this is a rhetorical question. It doesn't need anybody to answer it. You can answer it whatever you're doing to yourself. Is that including me? Yeah, you don't need to answer it either. Here's the rhetorical question. Is it okay to see Morrissey? There are two people in this studio. One person, and not the other, wiped the computer uh, keyboard and mouse with a wet wipe. You are a mad person. I'm just saying one person did and the other person didn't. It's my computer. No one else is going to use my computer. Who am I going to pass my germs on to? Me? I'm laying it out there. But Simon, this is my computer. Your computer. Forgive two things. Firstly, firstly, what you do with with a with a communal computer keyboard? I had to wipe it. Yeah. Okay. I've obviously given the question answer. is no. Please, I think we, I think everyone knew before who the what the answer was. Okay, you're using a communal keyboard. I am. So there may be an Commun- art- communal keyboard. I think, or is it communal? Communal sounds good because it sounds like the communards. So let's say it's a communal keyboard, yeah. You're using the communal's keyboard, yep. okay? And so the reason that you're disinfecting it is because other people's fingers have Correct. been typing on it, okay? And you don't know where other people's fingers, fingers have been. Correct. Right, okay? In the case of my keyboard here, you okay, know precisely. this is my laptop, okay? I bring it into the BBC. Nobody's fingers touch it other than me. You think? What, when I go out to the thing, do you sort of sneak onto Google? I do, is that why? Is that why my YouTube account keeps looking up Fairport Convention? Dumb. You know, the YouTube is the weirdest thing. So let's say it's a communal keyboard. Yeah, you're using the communal's keyboard. Yep. Okay, and so the reason that you're disinfecting it is because other people's fingers have Correct. been typing on it. Okay? And you don't know where other people's fingers, fingers have been. Correct. Right. Okay. In the case of my keyboard here, you okay, know precisely. This is my laptop. Okay, I bring it into the BBC. Nobody's fingers touch it other than me. You think? What, when I go out to the thing, do you sort of sneak onto Google? I do. Is that, why, is that why my YouTube account keeps looking up Fairport Convention? I don't, I, I don't quite understand how YouTube does this, all right? Because I don't really understand anything about computers, right? But if I go on YouTube, it immediately suggests videos for me that are a combination of the Rubettes, Shiwadi Wadi, Mud. It's like it knows exactly how old I am. Mm-hmm. It and it and it for some reason and I'm going I want to look up the trailer of a movie. No, it's not interested in that. It wants to know whether I want to watch um somebody singing Love Me, Love My Dog. Pete Shelley. Yeah. And did you know Algorithm, it's gotta be the algorithm. Well, I know, but the thing is the weird thing about whatever the algorithm is is that the algorithm has decided that no matter what else I do, all I'm actually interested in is early 70s pop music. Now, I confess 
that there is a truth in that. Incidentally, did you know that Pete Shelley, Pete Shelley, Peter Shelley? Yeah, it's Peter Shelley. Uh, yes, invented Alvin Stardust. How did he invent him? He was Alvin Stardust. Alvin Star Alvin Stardust. Okay, right. In, in this is this is not a made up thing. Okay, right. Alvin Stardust in the real world. Well, obviously, this is not really Alvin Stardust, okay? It's Shane Fenton, isn't he? Or yes. I don't know what Shane Fenton's actual real name was for. He was Shane Fenton and the Fentones. Bob, he may actually Bob have been... Chivers. Bob Chivers. okay. So Bob Chivers had a career as Shane Fenton from Shane Fenton and the Fentones, okay? Yes. Then Pete Shelley or Peter Shelley, whatever he was called at that point, invented a character called Alvin Stardust, whom he then did not want to play. So he, as far as I understand, he recorded My Kukachu first... And then got Shane Fenton, he called Bob, Bob Chivers, Chivers <laughs> to be. I'm. I am not making this up. Okay. So Alvin Stardust, and apparently there is a television program which I can't find on YouTube, and this is why YouTube knows that I'm doing this because I spent a long time trying to find it. There was a TV program in which Alvin Stardust, played by not Shane Fenton, played by Bob Chivers, played yes. Alvin Stardust and sang My Kukachu. Before Shane Fenton became it's Alvin It's not a Stardust. surprise that the algorithm says, I know you and I am going to send you stuff. Shiwadi waddy. That's the that's... Loads of shiwadi waddy. Um, <clears throat> so. Isn't that a fascinating story, though? Well, it was quite fascinating. Did it, did it tail off? It for tailed you? off it because it was quite lengthy. It, at times I was thinking, oh, can we get onto the Towering Inferno poster? But it's good. I'm now going to look that up. I am going to. I'm, go. I'm looking it up now while you say whatever else it is you're going to say because I just want to make sure that I'm absolutely not making this up now. Which bit? What do you? Which bit are you checking? You're not making up. No, hang on. Persona changing something up on the. No, no, no. I know, but this is okay. This is fine. Look at. Okay, this is from Wiki. All right. Bloody, 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 blood. During the early 1970s, he acquired a new persona, Alvin Stardust, after cashing in the glamour. Alvin Stardust was clearly referencing Ziggy, so blah, 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 blah. The Alvin Stardust character looked remarkably like blah, 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 blah. His new name was given to him by Pete Shelley, the co-founder with Michael Levy of Magnet Records. Shelley originated the persona of Alvin Stardust, writing, recording and singing the first Stardust single, My Kukachu. In 73, Shelley, however, had no interest in performing live or making public appearances. So even as Mike Kukuchu was climbing the charts, he was on the lookout for someone to take over the role of Alvin Stardust. And that's how Bob Chivers became Alvin Stardust. You should just read out the whole of Wikipedia as a talking book. You were right. Basically, you looked it up. Bernard Jury. Bernard William Jury is his name. Alvin. Bob. Bob. Bob's real name is that. Alvin's real name is Pete. I've got a very interesting email here, which I think you're going to find really intriguing. Is it about Alvin Stardust? It's from Professor Carl Mayton. Okay. Dear Booming Mike and Weaker Mike, I am an ex... We've heard about this guy, okay? It'll all come flooding back. Okay. I'm an expat professor who lives in rural Australia. A couple of weeks ago, you read out an email from a new Witter friend of mine reporting that after the fires... I had now been hit by floods and tracked by wild dogs. Yes. You yes. both wanted to know more about the wild dogs. Yes. So here is my real-life horror movie. Okay. And apologies if it sounds bizarre. Okay. But it is entirely true. Okay. So I would just like to say that, I, before we go into this, if you've had a slightly kind of rubbish week, yeah. just compare it <laughs> with the week that Professor Carl Maitens had. <laughs> okay, right? Go. right. 
A sudden flood turned my little valley into a river, closed all the roads between here and Sydney, damaged the bridges and put the ferries out of action. I was entirely cut off from everyone without power or running water. It's like the pre-title sequence. Well, this is before the stuff actually starts. After three days, the water receded enough for me to reach a cabin that has solar power so I could have a cup of tea. It's a 30-minute walk home, partly through mud that was now three feet deep. As I was wading through the mud, it's not funny at all, a storm erupted and lightning hit the valley wall opposite me, shocking me so much I fell face first into the mud. No. I then heard the barking of wild dogs. A neighbour had seen them in the valley the week before, probably looking for food after the bushfires. I then had to run about 50 yards because very large ants were... (laughs) (laughs) This is an Irwin Allen film. Very large ants were swarming and biting. Yes, really. As I rounded a corner... I almost ran into... What do you think he's going to... A lion? I almost ran into what? A lion. A, a rampaging... It's Australia. Baboons. OK, a large boxing kangaroo. Two. two large boxing kangaroos. Almost. Two wallabies bouncing close towards enough. me. I then realised that they were fleeing the wild dogs. The barking was now dead ahead. <laughs> it was at this point I thought... This I'm isn't funny, but it is funny. I am trapped in a low-budget horror <laughs> movie <laughs> directed by... <laughs> Needless to say, I set a new speed walking record in getting back... Walking? One... <laughs> That's right, because through it all, he's cool as a cucumber. In getting back to my house as fast as possible. Have any other members of the church... This is like the, the worst idea ever as a feature. Yeah, Have any then... other members of the church been in a horror movie in real life like this? <laughs> Not like that, no. Not like that. There is no one listening. So hang on. So, OK, f- floods... Fire. Fire. Lightning. Yes. Ants. Three-foot mud. Ants. Ants. Mad dogs, two wallabies, wallabies, more wild dogs, and I think that's it. Anyway. And fries. Professor says, go. it was all right in the end. After five days, two friends risked themselves and their off-road vehicle by driving through closed roads, fording flooded bridges and taking me, my two dogs and two cats back to the city. So a big what's up, please, for Simon and Miriam for rescuing me and thanks to my witter friend Andrew for emailing you about it. That is unbelievable. Tickety tonk and down with climate change deniers. (laughs) (laughs) And he's sending some... As they're now officially called by the BBC. Carl, I mean, that's just... I mean, I will throw it out, Carl, in your your honour... You suggested it. Yeah. Has anyone else Lived in been a in a situation where they felt like they've been in a real life horror movie? But that's this is the starting place. You have to be. It has to be more scary than that. Yeah. Killer yeah. ants. Yeah. Killer lightning. Killer dogs. Killer mud. Wallabies and fires. Right. I'll put that. That's in a, a very hard thing to top. Nothing's going to beat that. I suggest. I mean, I we had flooding down in in our house. Um, because we had, you know, the drains under the thing, whatever, because where yeah. we live, it, got all, it all got flooded up. And I thought that was bad enough because I was having to stick my hand down a cold, wet, f- floody pipe. But that's nothing in comparison with struck by lightning, bitten by ants, attacked by wallabies and chased by wild dogs. Cold, wet, floody pipe. The, it's the thing that, you know, there's there's like a ditch at the back of the hat that runs all the way along, because we live on a weirs, and it runs all the way back along. Is it a moat? Have you got a, a moat? No, is it a moat, Simon? The whole point about it is it's and not a drawbridge. No, no, although funnily enough, when the pipe, when the under, when the pipey thing gets stuck, then we do have a moat. In fact, we did have a moat around our house that nearly became a swimming pool in our kitchen. Cool. It was particularly exciting because you had to stick your hand down the pipey thing. In fact, I didn't even do it. I wasn't even there the first time it happened. Linda was doing it. I'm afraid it doesn't come close to the professor. No. Um, this is from Jim in London. Oh, dear, 
Oh, no, it's dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay. Oh, dearie, dearie me. I'm not sure who'll be playing the parts of Mark and Simon this Friday. It's like waiting for the mist to clear on stars in their eyes. Well, it's Mark and Simon. In the 21st of February show, Mark was on fine form. He invented the new words objectious and obnoxionable. <laughs> One by accident, the other rather niftily on the hoof. They're quite good, actually. <laughs> you are completely obnoxionable and I am completely objectious. <laughs> then at the close of the show, Mark told us he was off on some travels. And earlier on, he had given the traditional pronunciation of his surname. He had also made some striking noises, a distinctive outpouring of air to express his dismay at a film not fulfilling its potential, and his rendition of the noise a dog makes to bring comfort when a human buddy needs to have their spirits lifted. Did I do all this in the same show? Adding the noises to the information reveals a heartwarming story in which Mark sees a relative by... Oh, hang on. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read this bit at the end. So we'll hear the... We're going to... So all those sounds that you made... Yes. ...have all been put together... Right. ...like this. I'm about to rush to an airport on the back of a motorbike. Mrs. Kiermet. Adding the noises to the information reveals a heartwarming story in which Mark sees a relative by chance whilst being encouraged by a little doggy as he pumps up the tyres of a friend's <laughs> motorbike in readiness for a road trip to the plane station. <laughs> Should we hear it again? <laughs> Go on. OK. I'm about to rush to an airport on the back of a motorbike. Mrs. Kiermet. Pretty good. You're incredible. You're like a, it's like a human beatbox. Like a human beatbox. That's what you are. Uh, thank you. So thanks very much to uh, John in London for that. Uh, Luke says, Simon and Mark, or Mark and Simon, I'm a medium-term listener, first-time emailer. I apologise in advance for the long email. Can I just say, this is the shortest email we've had all Okay, yeah. But uh, Luke... You don't know what a long email is. I have this condition, which is called, and I hope I've got the pronunciation right, keratoconus, okay. which means the corona... Sorry, which means the cornea. We've had enough Freudian coronas. slip. Okay, it's called ter- keratoconus, which means the cornea in both of my eyes grow thin and weak. So back in October, I underwent cross-linking surgery, which is an eye operation to help strengthen the cornea. This sounds like it's the setup for one of okay. producer Simon's jokes, but it isn't. Afterwards, my eyes were in so much pain that I couldn't open them for a few days and it took me a couple of weeks to get used to watching the television and bright lights. Right. As I was not able to watch the television, my mum and dad let me listen to your show and I was able to forget about the pain. We have numbing qualities, Mark. That I've been told this. The surgery was a success and my mum and dad good. are now converted to your church. I would like to thank you both for helping me get through a tough period in my life. Hello to Jason, down with the Nazis and all that jazz. That's, I mean, that so, sounds like a... Luke Guyon, that's from. That sounds like a heck of an operation. That is. Anyway, we... It's, num- a, it's amazing what they can do. I mean, I'm not saying this... I mean, it is amazing what they can do with medicine, isn't it? It is, and Luke and his parents are uh, very appreciative. Great. Well, I'm very glad it all worked out all worked out well for you because that that just... I can't, even, I can't really even picture what it is that they must have done to do no, that. But he's, he's a whole lot better. Adam Harper from Ilkley. Do you want to say hello to Adam Harper? Hello, Adam Harper from Ilkley. Here's the thing. 
A few weeks back, Simon referred to a song that is an earworm tuned for him, playing it for us all to enjoy. Apologies for not checking back for the specific details, but I'm sure that other members of the church will recall it. Indeed, they will, and they don't want us to go through all those earworms ever again. I have recently acquired a new earworm. Which is? And I would like to share it. Okay. This is not remarkable in and of itself. However, the title of the song, a new release by emerging exuberant indie band Sports Team. Okay. Do we know them? No, no, but we're about to. And it's called Here's the Thing. Here it is. It's like the piranhas all over again. That's right, yeah. So here's, here's the thing it's called. This is a turn of phrase often used by Mark, which means that now every time that the venerable Mr. K utters the phrase, I'm immediately plunged back into the song's chorus. I therefore hope that in the spirit of sharing and community amongst fellow church members, you'll be so good to introduce the song to other wittertainees so that I can embrace the possibility that I won't be alone with this reaction. A bit more of the chorus. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. I quite like that, actually. Yeah, it's kind of catchy. Feels like 1979. Yeah, 80, 81. 81? Yeah, New Wave. Oh, no, I suppose that was sort of... Yeah, Power Pop. Because it was... They called it... It was sort of New Wave in 79, then it became Power Pop in 1980-ish, isn't it? About right? Yeah. Blondie was sort of the... I do quite like... I have to say... I know I like a good post-punk power pop. You like a bit of exuberant indie band sports team. Anyway... Uh, Adam, thank you, thank you very much indeed. Anyway, we've got a fantabulous show coming up. It was pointed out that Where's Me John But was Sultans of Ping. Many people wrote in to say that's who it was. Because remember I was saying, was it Half Man, Half Biscuit? But it was Sultans of Ping. Very good. Where's Me John but. Well, uh, can I just say I'm looking forward to the show very much. So am I. I'm looking forward to it being augmented. Yes. So look out for the algorithm. Look out for the man. Yep. And here we go. Everything in the last minute... It's always this, this. So you can't just say this is the thing. So this is Wittertainment. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. This is five minutes past three. In a world. This is Simon and that is Mark. No, that sounds... No, that sounds like that. That over there is Mark. That strange thing over there. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine. I just have a word on the live stream, Mark. You remember a few weeks ago, Five Live switched off automatically live streaming most shows. Yes, but didn't they put? Didn't they save us? Uh, Weren't we a bubble yeah. of containment? Yes, you can still see us every Friday between three and five in all our youthful and vigorous glory. Oh, is there? Is that in a special effect to make that? That's right. It's a special filter. Okay. It, this is all on the Five Live website, of course, and it okay. gets even better than that. We've been given our very own live streaming short web address. Really, Witterwatch. Uh, and that address is nice and brief, and it's easy to remember. No more hunting down the homepage for the live stream. So here it goes. Have you got a pencil and paper? No, I've got a computer. But Okay. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash dot BBC dot, dot in... Hang on, dot for... The HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash 
dot dot yeah b hyphen no not hyphen b b c dot dot yeah in i n in yeah w i t t e r w a t h hang on for witter watch w i t t e r w a t h w a t c h yes w a t c h yes and that will take you straight to the live stream no will it? okay yeah, you well, will simply be redirected well, hang on. to our exclusive live streaming page at https colon forward slash forward slash bbc.co.uk forward slash events forward slash ezqfbq forward slash live forward slash cj9bj5 yeah well it might do if the bbc internet hadn't decided at this point this moment to stop function it's marvelous Anyway, everyone else can just I know, it's, use it's their ba- own. It's back on again. And we're back. Hang on, it's back on again. Right, so I'll put it in. So B, so BBC... Can't be found. Okay. <laughs> it's not working. Or you mean people just have to listen to us? I can't, this is not... Anyway, doesn't matter. I am... <laughs> Honestly, can I just say, if anybody has managed to make that address work, why not let us know? That would be a very nice thing. Um, some important business, first of all. Okay. Uh, an email from Ben Saul, teaching okay. teaching professor, Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Hello. Dear Dr. Doctor and Professor, can't you feel I'm burning, burning? Very good. Greetings from the London Hospital, where a number of recent confirmed cases of the dreaded pox have been gathered and isolated, including myself. OK. So, so Ben is currently isolated. OK. Although, yeah, OK, fine. The staff here at the Royal Free, if you can mention them. Oh, the Royal Free, OK. Yeah have been superb in their caring and friendly way, despite being in the room that nobody currently wants to be in treating us. Imagine being in the one room that no one wants to go in. Well, that's where you'll find Ben. I'd introduce you to my fellow patients, but apparently isolation doesn't work like that. So I'm getting by with Infectious Diseases Film Club, (laughs) where I'm joined by my kids via a fruit-based talking pictures device. Whilst we watch films in our separate glorious isolation. So this is very ingenious use of technology. It's isolation, but somehow not isolation. Very good. They are all being quarantined at home and driving their mum crazy for the next 10 days. So I think I got some of the better deal here. (laughs) So far, we've managed Four Lions and Thor Ragnarok. Something to do with Dad having a God complex since single-handedly shutting down a major music institution on Monday with the power of a tickly cough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Now, here, here's the thing, right? So okay. you are, this is the situation. The family are isolated yes. in one place. Dad, Ben, is isolated. He's in the, in the royal in, in, in the room that no one will go into. Right. And he's running Infectious Diseases Film Club. Okay. He's running, he's going to watch Delicatessen. Yeah. And he says, 28 days later, ready to go. Now, yeah. I'm just saying, if you're in a hospital yeah. with a kind of a who knows what's going to happen, yeah. do you really want to watch 28 Days Later? No. Which starts with, in a London hospital. Yeah, where, where things have gone badly wrong. In, in general, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're on your own. Yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. Anyway, they're ready to go, but probably need three or four more recommendations, please, if you could be so kind to see me back to a symptom-negative state in time for the release of Radioactive. How apt. So... From Owen, uh, who's 17, Ruben, 15, Madeline, 12, and myself, Tinkity Tonk, and try not to panic, everybody, for as as we know, this too shall pass. Uh, thank you, Ben, and we wish you all the best. And if we have any suggestions for Infectious Diseases Film Club, 
to be watched by Ben on his own with his family via an internet connection. Anyway, respect to you, and uh, we send you all our best wishes and anyone else who's got a suitable idea. One of the things about the opening of 28 Days Later, which everyone remembers because K- Killian Murphy walks out into London, he's still wearing the, uh, the hospital gown, and he walks out and it's this kind of what for a post-apocalyptic vision of London in which there's nobody on the streets. And all I'm thinking is... Wow, look, no traffic jam. That's amazing. That's absolutely, you know, how did they manage to get that bridge clear? And you know how they did it? They did it at six o'clock in the morning. That is the obvious choice. Yeah, they did it. In fact, earlier than that, I think it was because in the middle of the summer, they must have shot about 5.30 and they just shut the bridge and shot loads and loads of different angles as he went across it once. Hannah Perry, this is a very important moment. Okay. Very, very important moment. Dear all the mids and perfect EQ. Very good. I have been with my partner, Ashley, for eight years. And now, during this time, we have shared our love for film and for each other. But despite this, there was always this one problem, which would cause a wedge between us. He was refusing to listen to the show. And with that... Despite my heartfelt recommendation, he remained sceptical. Spelt with a K. When did that start? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> exclaiming, as he says, that Kermo bloke didn't understand Star Trek Nemesis, so why should I bother? And just leaving it at that. That is until approximately six months ago, when he finally gave in and decided to give it a go during his morning walk. Now he is hooked and has finally become a fully-fledged member of the church, constantly waving or shouting hello to Jason Isaacs if he ever appears on the television and always considers Mark's opinion before ever going to see a film. It was at this moment I decided that this was the man I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. The only problem is I am so unbelievably nervous to ask him. So, on Saturday, let's just assume they're not listening live. So, on Saturday, <laughs> and if you know Hannah, please don't tell her. Hang on, so, so, so this hasn't happened. wait. Okay, okay. It hasn't happened yet. Okay. I'm about to say it. No, all right, fine. Go on. On Saturday, I am planning to finally buck up and propose to him, hopefully without either crying or having a panic attack. If it's of no trouble for either of you, could you please lend a helping hand and ask, and I read from the script. Okay, hang on, I'm going to... We should have some sort of dum da da dum. Well, you're the you're the human beatbox. I am. Ashley Robinson Voss, would you be so kind and agree to marry Hannah Perry? Boom. That's it. Now the only issue here. Is, so first, you kind of say, if you know Ashley and Hannah, can you not ring up and spoil the moment because this is for tomorrow? Yeah, we should have done this in the podcast. Well. He, she didn't say do it in the podcast. And you didn't think, as you were saying it live on national radio. Actually, I now realise that I did, because I just wrote pod. Pod, yeah. <laughs> Not for the live... Sorry. Should we just... We... Sorry. Sorry. And the sound you can hear is that ball being dropped. Thump. But... Let's not detract let's, from the moment. Let's not spoil this moment it's of moment. It's happened already. It's happened. Ashley, Hannah. Hannah, Ashley. Ashley, yeah? Hannah, yeah, fine. There you go. I've, 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 I've how, did, how did that solve the problem? I love the fact that you actually wrote pod on the I email. Did. Question mark. And that, not the question producer, mark, producer, but pod exclamation mark is what it should Simon have been. said top of the show and I wrote pod. And then I just thought, well, the pod was full. So. Anyway, <laughs> it's that kind of anarchic thing that people like, isn't it? <laughs> so, you, you know, there is now a possibility that there is someone who has been proposed to 
whom the proposee doesn't know that they've done it yet. Mm -hmm. It's like a warp in the time-space continuum. We await updates. Who knows what's (laughs) going to happen next? Can't relax. Before the box office top ten, Wayne Aserati in Panath. I'm enjoying the Tom Hanks getting wet in movies thing immensely. Wanted to add his very dark performance of Singing in the Rain in the 1988 stand-up comedy movie Punchline. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alongside Sally Field. Yeah. I think it's a great film, which I had on heavy rotation in the video rental shop I used to run in Cardiff in the late 80s. Apparently, Tom Hanks did spots in comedy clubs for six months before filming... In preparation. ...to get his delivery right. And then he says... Wayne says, anyway, keep up the excellent work. Tidy darts. Okay. Is that is that an is that an expression? Tidy darts just means carry on. I imagine so. You're doing okay. Tidy darts must be you know nice grouping. Oh, okay. I mean I don't know. It's not. Finally, just before the top ten, here we go. Chris Pollard, on the subject of niche typecasting, has anyone yet pointed out that the late great Bob Hoskins twice played futuristic plumbers, first in Brazil, then yeah. again in Super Mario Brothers eight years That's later. That's right. The beauty of this is that the films are so different in tone and reception, but his costume and demeanour is nigh identical. In the interim, he pushed a cartoon rabbit down a sink, if that counts for three. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's about as niche as it's going to get. Unless, of course, you know better. Uh, box office top ten. Yes. At 26. <laughs> <laughs> Colour out of space. Yeah. Now, bear in mind, I was off last week. Were you off? Yeah, I was off. I, I, and there's a whole, there's a whole load. Of, we were off together, Simon. Yes, I, I remember. It was that like we were enjoying the weather in Cornwall. Um, there was a whole, there's a whole load of stuff that I haven't seen. So I haven't. The Colour Out of Space is the new Richard. It's the return of Richard Stanley, based on uh, H.P. Lovecraft and uh, starring uh, Nicolas Cage. Apparently, at his most Nicolas Cage. Nico has been to see it. Good. Hi, chaps. Watch Colour Out of Space in the basement of the Rio in Dalston, screen two. Most people watching the film had beards and looked slightly more read up on H.P. Lovecraft's short stories than I was. Anyway, the film started, it fumbled along like a rickety 60s Buick that needed its oil change two decades ago. (laughs) Nothing really happens, but Cage kind of holds it together just by being Cage. Cage. Suddenly, things start to happen when an unexpected object lands in the garden of their secluded family home. I'm thinking, this can't be the plot. Surely that's not the storyline. It gets so strange and horrifying to a point that I wanted to leave the cinema, but I had to cross the screen in a sea of bearded HP Lovecraft horror fans to get to the door. I thought, there's no way I have to stick this out to the end. I closed my eyes and just prayed it wouldn't go to places it shouldn't. But it does. Again. Of course. And again. Of course. Now, I have to say to the end, as the only... I have to say I stayed to the end as the only relief I'm going to get is some solution, some answer to all the questions. Maybe this will make me feel better, but no answers do not come. It ends with more questions, or probably the notion that we should have never asked questions in the first place, then the film ends. We're all left, we all left in silence, a band of not-so-merry men who have all just witnessed this together. I wanted to ask someone for a drink just to talk it out, but I didn't, too scared to let them know I didn't have a clue who this H.P. Lovecraft was. <laughs> oh, really? OK. Now, after 24 hours, I've let it settle. I've Googled him and I realise I might have watched a masterpiece. Anyway... Many thanks. You must let us know what you think. Fortunately, lobby correspondent Rupert Morris says this. It was horrible, <laughs> filled with eldritch terror. Nick Cage went full Nick Cage. But it was good to see Richard Stanley make a movie again. I think he deserved it. I could hear them. They are coming. Yeah, that's a little long. That's, that's 12 good. seconds. That's but, very you know, good. That's, that's very good. Very so, good. Rupert, thank you very much. If you want to be a lobby correspondent, by the way, you, you step out of the film when it's finished, obviously, yeah. and at an appropriate distance to anyone else so that you don't spoil it for them coming in. You record your uh, 10 seconds tops 
uh, into your phone and then you email it to mail at bbc.co.uk. That's what you do. Uh, box office top 10 at 19, true history. Of which I have seen, Kelly and which I thought was really, really great, as we were saying before when we were talking to Alison John, John and, um, uh, I mean, Alison John, John Nellis, Mayo and Kermode, Kermode and Mayo, it doesn't matter. Either way around, it's exactly the same. But here's, an intri- here's my interesting anecdote about true history of the Kelly gang. Yes. I was in Shetland with George McCartney. He'd come up to the Shetland Film Festival when he got the the role um, the central role in uh, True History of the Kelly Gang. And, uh, and I said, well, have you seen the Mick Jagger? And he said, no. I said, you need to see the Mick Jagger. But this is very much not the Mick Jagger. I mean, it's a really, really powerful film. And I, I do, I, I've said this before and I will say it again. George Mackay is one of those actors who it is possible to see in four different films and not realise you are watching the same actor. And that's why he's brilliant and it's also possibly why he's not yet the household name that he should be. Because when you think of 1917, he he carries that He does, film. he does. And also he has the quality, which and we have mentioned this before, uh, Jason and David Morrissey of this parish yeah. have that ability to play somebody and you're about 10 minutes and so you go, oh, it's, oh, it's them. That's, that's exactly what I instantly mean. instantly come on and, and you go, oh, it's Bill Nye. Yeah, and that's, what, for me, that is what being a good actor is being able to embody each role so you see the character first and not go that's tom cruise in the mummy tommy in crouch end my long-suffering wife and i went to see true history of the kelly gang last night and it's a mess it's a delightful mess (laughs) at times an intentional mess at times certainly the performances i'm looking at you crow and visuals are worth the entry fee alone i kind of feel this is a movie that got lost in the edit some characters underserviced I'm still not sure who the bloke in the eye patch was, and some relationships undernourished. Uh, women are not treated kindly at all, and there is a final scene and speech which left us thinking, well, duh, you don't need to explain <laughs> the point of your movie here. Believe in the strength of your convictions. When we left the picture house in Crouch End, neither of us thought it was much cop. You want a manly men movie about the, de- about the descent into madness? Check out Lighthouse. However... After a night's sleep, the dreamlike imagery and key scenes were bouncing around my subconscious and I woke up feeling far more sympathetic to it. It is still a mess, though. And I, there's an interesting thing about movies that do that, movies that you have to let settle. And it's a debate that goes on in film criticism quite a lot and it particularly highlights this thing that I have a problem with, which is reviewing films at festivals in which people come out of a movie and they have to turn the review of the movie round immediately. Quite often... It takes a few, and you know, I'm lucky enough to have the privilege of a few days before we do the reviews here. I've been filed the Observer reviews on Wednesday, but that everyone I think is aware of that thing about letting a movie settle, particularly a movie which hits you in a strange way. And you, I mean, that's two sets of movies, both the responses of um, Color Out of Space and uh, True History of the Kelly Gang, both of which we've heard from people saying, "I wasn't sure what it was at the time." Yes, I think the. Uh the key word there is percolate. Yeah, percolate. There are percolate. some films that just drip, yeah. drip, 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 yeah. and then it goes, oh, I see. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so that is um, Portrait... Uh, no, yeah. 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 What? No, no, you, you Downhill I haven't seen. True History Portrait of Lady Gang is at 19. Right. Downhill is at 13. Yeah, which I haven't seen. Uh, I think somebody has here. Yes, here we go. This is Catriona McPherson. Chaps, 
In Robbie's review of Downhill last week, he compared it unfavourably with force majeure five separate times. He also put forward the opinion that even someone who hadn't seen force majeure would find Downhill disappointing. Well, I haven't seen force majeure and I thought Downhill was good. Clear-sighted but sympathetic, touching at times, painful and honest. That scene... Heartbreak all round. I get that it's annoying when films are remade in English, but in this instance, the scorn poured on the finished remake was over the top. With respect to the charge that the characters were ciphers, maybe totting up the ways this film wasn't another film got in the way of seeing what it was. I live in California and I recognise JLD's family... Uh, uh, Tinkity Tonk and so on. So, Catriona, thank you. What I can tell you is I have seen Force Majeure and I think it's a terrific film and I can't imagine what the remake would do with it, but I haven't seen the remake so I can't pass judgment. Uh, so that is uh, 13. Portrait of a Lady on Fire It's is just it 11? It's just brilliant. And so this is kind of proof, if any further proof were needed, that Celine Ciamar is one of the most important filmmakers working at the moment. It is an absolutely note-perfect film. And Celine Sciamma herself has said that she envisaged it as a manifesto about the female gaze. And the best thing about the film is that while that is true, while you are watching it, there's no part of you that thinks, I am watching a manifesto about the female gaze. What you think is, I am watching a film that is utterly engrossing. It has an almost Hitchcockian air of intrigue. And the setup is somebody is sent to paint a portrait of somebody who does not want to have their portrait painted because they don't want the portrait to be sent to a suitor who then will marry them. And so it's this kind of this thing about looking but not looking, of seeing but not seeing, painting but not painting. And I think it's just I think Celine Sciamma, who made Girlhood and, uh, you know, Water Lilies and Tom, is just a genius. And I I unreservedly loved Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, lobby correspondent Douglas Dean was fresh out of a late Wednesday night screening at Broadway Cinema Nottingham. He sent this. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the kind of film which will crop up in many academic studies. It's cinematic artwork. I don't think it will be something I ever see again, but it is certainly something that I'm glad to have seen. And here's the thing. I've got quite a lot of correspondence about yeah. this. And I, uh, we've got lots to fit in. And yeah. we've got Imogen Poots and we've got Jesse yeah. Eisenberg. So I'm gonna, if it's OK with you, you're going to come back to Portrait of the okay, so, a bit later on so we can have a Yeah, no, longer, okay, great. I would like to talk about it longer because I just love it. Fine. Well, why don't we do that a bit later on? OK, fine. And we'll certainly come back to that cool. because a lot of people feel very, very strongly okay. about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Right. Number, I'm just where we haven't even got to No, no, that's fine. fine right. uh, at 10 is Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. Uh, Nine Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Which I enjoyed because it was so much better than I had expected after the the, the mess of Suicide Squad. And it, it was, I thought, a film that actually did have the punky spirit that it, that it should have had and that the, the film before the Suicide Squad didn't have. The Call of the Wild is at eight. Some people have griped about the CG um, uh, dog. I, it didn't bother me. Uh, I actually thought that Call of the Wild was a rather charming... I mean, obviously, it's a story that we've seen told on screen several times before. In terms of the ethics of uh, using a digital canine character, I know they've said that it's a digital animation, live-action hybrid. Uh, and, of course, the guy who's um, who's doing the territory, who's doing the, the, the stuff, is uh, the guy who's so brilliant in the square. I thought Call of the Wild was really charming i thought it worked well and i thought that harrison ford gave good grizzle uh, 1917 is at number seven again gorgeous george mckay carrying a film shoulder high on the strength of his performance of his eyes of the fact that he has one of the most expressive faces in modern cinema and my only real regret about the recent award season is that george mckay wasn't uh 
wasn't highlighted in the way that I think he should have been. Uh, now, it's Emma at number six. Here's an email from Heather in Glasgow. OK. Something I think needs credit in this movie is the brilliant soundtrack by Isabel Wallerbridge and David Schweitzer, it, which manages to capture our expected views of the Regency style of Austin's time, but also keeps it fresh and different, all while adding to the overall comedy feel of the film. Making use of the musical talent of Johnny Flynn during the film and in the end credits was another wise decision. The soundtrack also successfully captures some of the other cultural elements of music at the time, such as folk songs and hymns. This was a particular edition I loved, although I fear it may have led to some code-breaking on my part due to the use of the old classic hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Being a family of the Mance, this hymn is familiar to us and often causes hilarity due to the line, which is as it's written, you, comma, who unto Jesus for refuge has fled. We can never quite get over the image of people waving heavenward and going, you, who, unto <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the first instance of the film, of the hymn in the film passed me by, although I had noticed my mum having a little snicker to herself, not a chocolate bar. It wasn't until the third appearance of this hymn, which occurs at a key point in the plot, where the yoo-hoo was particularly cheery and drawn out that I noticed anything was amiss. I'm not a generally snorty person, but this was the moment I released the loudest laugh snort I have ever given, getting setting mother and uh, off into louder fits of giggles, which our fellow viewers must have found confusing at best and infuriating at worst. Apologies to them. Overall, we had a fantastic trip, enjoyed some much-needed mother-daughter time and discussed the film all the way home and would recommend it to anyone looking for a clever period piece with good film qualities. But you say, on the subject of that, um, laughing at a hymn, becoming a private joke that you again can't get rid of, and incidentally, that's a, you're quite right about the soundtrack because it is terrific and the use of live music is very important in Emma. Um... Child One, when Child One was very young, um, used to sing, you know, the, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. Yes. She used to sing, the kettle are boiling, because that's what she thought the line was. And I I cannot ever hear that without thinking the cattle are boiling. Emma at six, do little at five. Um, why? I'm not, I'm, I have no real explanation as to why it exists, but... Uh, we've had a couple of emails from people that took their family and didn't find it actively obnoxious. Very, very good. <laughs> Dark Waters is new at number four. Lobby correspondent Mark Mulkeen was in Sutton Coalfield. As a film, it's very well cast, acted, written, scored, produced and directed. It is the scariest horror film I have seen in a long time because it's based on facts, terrible facts. I mean, it's interesting that... You know, it's obviously not a horror film. What it is, it's based on real life story about a, a battle against a chemical company. Which is, I mean, the the film came about because Mark Ruffalo optioned the New York Times story, and and you know, so he he has it has a lot of investment in it. It's directed by Todd Haynes, although the direction is very very. I mean, I'm not the only person to say this. Very light hand on the tiller stylistically. If you were watching the film, if you think about Todd Haynes's other stuff, you wouldn't immediately know that that's what you were watching. But it is, there's a kind of Aaron Brockovich feel to it, that, that the narrative, it almost feels like the narrative itself is so alarming that the film is almost doing this thing about saying, OK, well, we're going to just step back on the back foot of this because this doesn't need anything to make it feel anymore. But you do get the sense of that central character kind of coming to this awful realisation of what's going on. And I do think Ruffalo does that very well. But as I said, he has an awful lot invested in the film. He's In fact, he's a producer of the film. 
I, I thought it, it's it's a great what I thought it was a really interesting story. Did you interview Mark Ruffalo for it? Didn't no, 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 no. I, sorry, no, I think button. we were hoping to, and, okay. then, and then he and then he didn't come over. But uh, but it is a good story, isn't it? It's a good story, but it's not. It doesn't quite deliver as a piece of cinema. But that's what. But my feeling about it is is that feeling about it, it's a, it's an almost no style film. Feels like the film is saying this story is very important, and therefore we don't need to do anything. That would get in okay. the way of become right. between you and the story. He certainly bulked up for it, didn't he? I mean, he's almost unrecognisable as, uh, as mind you. He still looks. He still looks good. He still looks good. Um, Parasite is number three. I think we've kind of uh, the black and white version is coming out. I think at the end of the month. Uh, again, I have some terrific Parasite correspondence, which we but we'll we come need back to, to get to Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Imogen Poots after the news and sport. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog is at number two. Mm, you know, I, I, actually better than it could have been. Uh, certainly after the whole thing about them, you know, withdrawing it and redesigning the character in order to appease the fans, it turns out probably the fans were right. And you know, it there's a, it's a weird thing about taking Sonic out of Sonic's world. But since I'm not a huge, I mean, I'm you know, I'm not a video game player as we know anyway. I thought the movie was better than it could have been. Invisible Man is a new entry and I have number one. I haven't seen it, but uh, but interestingly enough, I've already been attacked on Twitter by some nutball saying, Mark Kermode reviewed this film and he just said, now it's all about women's rights. And I knew he'd say that, which the answer is, A, haven't seen it, B, haven't reviewed it. Was it Peter Cook? It was Peter Cook, yes, it was. Exactly Jim Rudall in Canada. Uh, being a big Elizabeth Moss fan, uh, Top of the Lake was exceptional. I was instantly pulled into tense, disturbing reality of terrified woman of a terrified woman looking to escape the psychological torture of an abusive spouse who was immensely impressed at how the film built on this theme as the horror of the narrative unfolded. The scares were unjumpy and well-timed and the one truly jump-out-of-your-seat moment made me break the code with a well-formed expletive. And it was in an empty cinema, so I don't think it counts. And the ending was both disturbing and satisfying in equal measure. I'm really looking forward to it. And and uh, as I said, I mean, I've heard really good things. I was listening to Robbie reviewing it, and uh, uh, there was a very interesting interview about it on the show last week, which is, listen, it was a cracking show. Um, and uh, I'm really, really looking forward to the movie, and I'm really, really expecting to like it. And Lou in Glasgow, this is not a film about a heroic character who uses his powers of invisibility for good. Anyone who had read even a thumbnail description of the film, let alone seen the trailer, would know this. I had missed both and found myself watching a film about domestic abuse. Whatever happens in the end does not excuse the two hours of misogyny porn that preceded it. I'm not sure who this film is aimed at. Too realistic to be sci-fi horror? Uh, this film was harrowing for me. I'm surprised at Elizabeth Moss tying herself to yet another brutalised woman role. I don't want to introduce spoilers if you haven't seen it, so we'll say no more about it at this time. OK, well, I am going to see it. I'm going to see it on Mon uh, not Monday, on Tuesday... No, not Tuesday, Wednesday evening of next week, and I will give you a full review by next Friday. Lobby correspondent Elizabeth Hills in Bedford. It was brilliant, really suspenseful... Elizabeth Moss can say about 25 things in one expression. Would highly recommend. Uh, so Invisible Man is the UK's number one. I'd just like to say, if you'd really like me to go and see and like a film, uh, take time out to go on Twitter before I've seen it and tell me how much you hate the fact that I like it. That's a very That's good a brilliant, well done, well done to everybody. Uh, so coming up, Imogen Poots and Jesse Eisenberg talking about their new movie. Thanks very much for all the correspondence that comes in. Uh, and we'll talk more about Emma and Portrait of a Lady on Fire and also Parasite, uh, all coming up. Uh, plus all the new releases. And also we're going to talk about a film that's coming out in a few weeks' time. It's called Vivarium. It stars Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots, who we'll hear from after this clip. I'm Gemma. This is my boyfriend, Tom. Hey, what's up? 
Gemma and Tom. Lovely to meet you. It's lovely to meet you too, Martin. Yonder is a wonderful development. Both tranquil and practical, it has all you'd need and all you'd want. And as for the prices, it's no wonder these houses are getting snapped up. <laughs> I know what you guys are thinking. Suburbia. But there's more to yonder than what you see in these images. We've lovely people, all sorts of people ready to move in. It's going to be a diverse community. Something different, a nice blend. Where's it located? Near enough. And far enough. Just the right distance. That's a clip from Vivarium. It stars Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots. I'm delighted to say they are both with us in the studio. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Imogen. Hello. Hello. Uh, already, we've had an exciting start uh, to our pre-chat, which I think it counts as, as the normal discipline of tell us what you had for breakfast resulted in Jesse just saying, I want to count to 10. Mm-hmm. So there was. I apologise for an intrusive question, and I apologise for not complying with a simple request. <laughs> That's fine. But all the levels are now tippity top, and they're very good. Excellent. Um, Except for my microphone, which still sounds weedier oh. than everybody else's. I don't know why that is. <laughs> Sounded like that since Nixon resigned. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you've worked together <laughs> before. Yeah, anyway, we used to do an on-stage double act. It was. You know, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jess, Jesse and Kermit. It was the big thing. Yeah, yeah. a lot of Nixon thing? jokes. Yeah, a lot of yeah. Nixon jokes. And we performed know. it last year, which seemed less relevant. How many? How many Nixon jokes? Although suddenly now, suddenly, so suddenly now, now it, it seems feels more relevant, relevant than ever. We're also doing King Lear. For some reason, that feels. Are we doing that? I thought that was cancelled. And Peter Pan. For some reason, just no, today, no, 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 no. Know, the, the, the Pan thing. The, I'm not doing the Pan. Right, right, right. Uh, Jason Isaacs is doing, but I'm not doing Pan. Ooh. I will do the, the, the Lear, but I'm not doing Pan. Okay. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that Imogen and I are actually working on a, working on a new movie. Yeah, yeah, Underground. Is that right? The Underdog. That's right. It's yeah. called The Underground and the Underdog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is actually what it's, right. that's what it's called. And what's the, what's the brief synopsis of it? Well, I, I, we, it, we're under strict rules that... Uh, underground, Underdog anything. and Under Wraps. That's, yeah. that's, that's terrific. Right. You know the whole Killian Murphy thing? Yeah. He can't talk about it. He can't. Even though he's the lead. Oh, no, I can't actually even say that. Yeah. Alongside... This is a show. reference to Simon getting Killian Murphy into trouble by asking him on air... If he was in Dark Knight Returns, I think so. And Killian Murphy said, "I can't, I can't tell you." And Simon said, "Why not?" He said, "I've signed something," that, well, which kind of went, which means you're in it. You're because why would you sign it. something? Oh, about him? oh, right. oh, oh! oh. Anyway, sometimes you sign something before you even, you know. Sometimes there's like a non-disclosure agreement of reading the script, so it's possible. It's, that actually does happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've oh, before you stuff. get the job, you mean? Or like, yeah, oh, they send you the script, sign this thing that you won't talk about it. This has happened oh, oh, to me. Oh, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Stanley Kubrick used to only send people the page. Oh, I think that Stanley Kubrick used to send people the pages that they might be in. Yeah. But that was it and nothing else. So I think that probably actually isn't as unique as it seems. I always find it strange when studios will send out a script for a project which has no relation to the script that you're given. So they'll sort of, if it's like Spider Man 3. They'll send you something from sort of Lord of the Flies. You oh, know? interesting. You, Which you would rather maybe do. Oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very confusing. Yeah. Right, right, right. You're yeah. royal. So you write back and say, I don't want to do Spider-Man 3, but if you're making this Lord of the Flies, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Fine. Jesse and Imogen, thanks very much for coming in. Um, Vivarium is out. No, actually, that's obviously not the right place to finish the interview, given that we haven't talked at all about <laughs> Vivarium, where Jesse and Imogen play Tom and Gemma. Tell us about Vivarium and your characters. Take us into this world. Right. They're off to see a prospective house and uh, unbeknownst to them, they will not return to reality as Mm -hmm. they know it. Um, And they sort of end up getting stuck in some sort of vortex 
and within the vortex, it's rich with like metaphor. And, um, <laughs> you have to go into a stupid American I, yeah, accent. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> talk metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, it's essentially like a psychological horror, I suppose, on one level. Um, mm-hmm. But you can sort of um, explore it in a deeper sense. And uh, yeah, it's it's a hard going watch, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But it's it's hard going. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit of a struggle, I think, to get through. It's essentially about the monotony of life in suburbia. Um, maybe you can interpret that as paradise as well. I think, in some sense, a sort of just clinical ennui of life and everything kind of being delivered to you and mm-hmm. one size fits all. Society. Are these the metaphors? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. The movie yeah, to me is like this amazing fever dream of like all the deep anxieties we have you know it's about this young couple who's looking for a house they want to have a child they want to get married and then all of these things happen but in the most like nightmarish way and so the movie is like i think of it as like the kind of nightmare you'd have the day before you sign a lease or have Mm. a child (laughs) it's like all of the most horrific anxieties you have about growing up and establishing a life occur to this couple. Yeah. So, so my so my first question is really about now that we've established what the movie is about. So, Tom, you're a you're a gardener, kind of true. Uh, you're a tree, a tree, surgeon. Sur- tree surgeon. Yeah. Uh, and Jamie, you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we meet you, and you go about uh, life, and then you go into an estate agent. Now, here's the thing: if you're a estate agent, which is a freaky place to start with, mm. and then when you're a estate agent, Martin. He's a freaky-looking guy in mm-hmm. the first place. He looks like Ron Mail from Sparks. So already you know you're in trouble. At that point, why didn't you guys just walk out and go, I'm not buying a house from him? We do. We we, we walk out. We dr- we go back in our car. We try to leave this this um, uh, like neighborhood. No, he means when you're still in the, well, the in, in the estate agent before you go in. Why don't you just run? Although it's, you know, it's a, the, the the idea is that this you know young couple's desperate to buy a house. The movie is written by um, uh, uh, to. Irish guys who are kind of, um, you know, inspired or alarmed by the housing crisis in Dublin and how, you know, families are kind of forced further and further outside the city because there's a housing shortage. Yeah. And so these this this young couple is desperate to be homeowners. They're called ghost estates, weren't they? So they've basically they're overbuilt built. all of these uh, housing estates and then they couldn't fill them um, across the island. But I think that's like some sort of hypnosis that occurs with this estate yeah. agent. But isn't it also, it, I mean, I, I read it that the important thing was that question, why don't they run? Because crucially, therefore, it's kind of their fault that they can then feel guilty about why didn't we run? Because there's a question later on mm. in the film, which is why didn't you allow me to do something? Why didn't I allow you to do something that I should have done? Mm-hmm. And the reason is that as this nightmarish scenario unfolds, it's kind of they've allowed it to happen all the way, right back to the why didn't we just run when Ron Mail out of Sparks turned out to be the estate agent. Right. But I wonder if that's also a question of like not taking responsibility for yourself as well, like being spoon-fed an idea and just accepting it and going along with the plan. And it all uh, apparently on the surface looks very lovely, like the prospectus and the colours and the sort of mm-hmm. um, the sense of the place just seems perfect. They sort of buy into that idea without questioning it. And then just to describe what the place is like, we arrive there and it is street after street of the same green-hued houses, all of which, when seen from above, all look exactly the same with the same umbrella in the back, the same garden out the front. And they drive through it and it's apparently completely empty until they get to number nine, Mm -hmm. which appears to be... Number nine. Number nine. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, but there is something about the number nine as a reason of that. And then... And and what you're already creeped out because you've seen so many versions of the same house. So that yes. by the time they arrive at the one that's apparently their house, 
it's yeah, it's why don't we just run? Right. Yes. And and also and and you go in because you're desperate for a house, so it's actually not a bad house, really. I mean, and it's, yes, there are yes. thousands that look the same, but when you get in there, you go, okay, well, it's got the basics. That's right, and I mean, everything in the movie is like this aspirational version of like um, of what we seek. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm American, so I think of it as this very American thing. You know, you seek the beautiful house with the lawn and, you know, a beautiful mm. child. So we have this kid who's this, you know adorable gorgeous kid who seems sweet except the context around all of this stuff is horrific the kid is like a demonic parasite the house is this like you know soul-sucking sterile place so the whole movie is really about like these aspirations that we have kind of turned on their heads in a kind of hellish landscape is it uh helpful uh tony because it is a hard movie to describe um to so a couple of things that it made me think of. So I thought of uh, the Twilight Zone episode in which the whole world is run by the kid who you can't allow to get cross because if he does, the world will be destroyed. Oh. I was thinking of John Wyndham's The Midwich Cuckoos. I was thinking of you doing The Double and uh, that same kind of, you know, paranoid landscape. And also there's a kind of weird Stepford Wives thing to it, which mm. is that part of the terror is that yes. this is the version of... of perfection. Sort of the perfection that you've dreamed of. Yes, exactly. Why, why aren't you embracing it? Yeah, Right, it's lacking a soul. It's yeah. lacking something that's indefinable, but uh, but terrifyingly absent. Yeah, um, and we should say also the film does start with an image of a bird pushing another bird out of a nest, which so the cuckoo's thing is flagged up very clearly at the beginning. Yeah, we should actually yeah. say. Obviously, the first question should be, "What is a vivarium?" So I apologise for not asking that question. So I'll do it now. What is a vivarium? Yeah, so it's a tank essentially by which you may watch life grow or not within it, for example, a reptile or a flower. Um, so the, the notion, the kind of the, the voyeuristic sense of we are as an audience watching the um, sort of dismantling of these people's yeah. <laughs> like mental health amidst other things. Um, and also, I think, I thought it was interesting how the characters have to constantly come up against these moral conundrums. So the idea of the gender roles within it, that the man is supposed to do the hard manual labour and the woman is supposed to have this maternal instinct, as hinted at at the top of the film by Gemma being a school teacher, to therefore want to be a mother and enjoy motherhood and, and all of those um, things that happen. We're able to kind of observe these characters um, come up against those issues. Uh, I want to ask, feel free to answer this in any way. If you feel it's giving it away, then, you know, answer it any way you wish. Does does the movie explain itself? Hmm. I mean, uh, truth, truthfully, my favourite part of this movie is that it doesn't offer any kind of obvious political statement about, you know, uh, some juvenile idea of, uh, you know, that the suburbs are boring or that kids can be a burden. Like, what I love about this movie is that it reminds me of, like, great surrealist films. I mean, I took some surrealist film classes in college we watched like Boonwell films and Man Ray films and this movie seemed to be kind of derived from the spirit of those rather than like a kind of uh you know opinion essay about the you know uh, you know monotony of living in the suburbs or you know the fact that monogamy is stressful or whatever uh, that's what I love so much about the movie it's really artfully done it's not like uh, exactly like a black mirror episode where there's a kind of clear commentary on the dangers of technology or the warnings of kind of like you know uh, futurist um, there was that film Woman in the Dunes did you ever get no, to see, see that, that. Lorcan our director Lorcan Finnegan was obsessed with that film and that's an incredible film about the frustration surrealist? Which is, well no it's just sort of about, it's, it is surrealist in some sense but it's basically about um a couple who a man who cannot escape 
the sand dunes. Oh, that's sort right. of and, your, and your director, uh, Lord Finnegan, he did a short called Foxes, which was mm. sort of the, the beginning of this story. Do you watch that first and then do this or have, has that been part of your kind of way of getting into the this particular film? Have you never even heard of this? No, no, I have. Yeah, no, we um we met first, and then I, and then I watched his work, and he'd also done a film called Without Name as well. But Foxes was very much a kind of prototype, I think, for this in the sense of like the setting and and uh, the the sort of chase of it yeah. all. Jesse, can I ask? Have you seen the finished copy of this film? The copy? The, the, it's a you... VHS? Um, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. So I... you still don't you still don't watch. The finished copies. No, but I, yeah, I've, yeah, I haven't seen the uh, tape. You were at but... Cannes Film Festival, were you not? You well, I it? went there and yeah. stood outside. You oh, know, I thought and... you watched the film. No, 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 no. I played my guitar God and asked for change. Earth. Oh, um, no, no, no. I don't like watching movies do? I've been in, but I would like to see this movie because. Yeah. Um, so you haven't seen it? No, but I saw the previews. I got to see kind of what it looks like. I mean, the movie is a real feat of engineering because it takes place in this fictitious town where there's you know an. I know that, but I've seen houses. it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, 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 Did you see our karate film? No. What the. I don't watch the movies. Not since 2007. Okay. Is that right? Yes, I think you... Since understand. The Living Wake. Wow. wow, you and my therapist have a hold <laughs> please, on my life. Please don't call him that. We will never hear I the just, end no, of it. All yeah. I'm wondering is if this is exactly the kind of film where, you know, I know you've been in it. Yeah. And so Because you and him, it is your film, but you really want to see what it looks like coming out of the screen. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is like one of the movies that I've been in that I kind of lament not seeing because it looks so different than what we saw on set because, like, you know, a lot of it was digitized and painted in because it takes place in this fictitious universe. I can, I can send you a link if you want to watch it. A, a, a link to the tape? <laughs> yeah, a link to the VHS. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Actually, it's a bit of Max, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it was a superior format. Don't knock it. Uh, Imogen, what do, what do we see you in next after this? Oh, goodness. Um, well, Jesse and I have done loads of films together, so have we got another? No, we haven't got another one in the can, have we? They've all come Two? out. Jeez, you really stumped me with that question. Uh, what's coming out? Suddenly, really in the spot. I'll come back. I'll come back to you, Jesse. Yeah. Have you got any work uh, yeah. coming up? I did a movie that's coming out like the same day as this movie, which you know, if you're no. like, yeah, well, what kind of agent do I have? Like, yeah, you sure throw them at the same. Time. I suddenly you remembered know, th- more yeah. importantly than Jesse's career. I suddenly remembered something. Something that is, fantastic, great. Uh, yeah, should I jump? Should I just? Go go? Yes, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Called I know this much is true, which is this Wally Lamb book, which. We shot in upstate New York last summer and just completely blanked on it, which Derek C. on France directed of Blue Valentine. Yeah, yeah, he's a brilliant director, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's enough about Imogen. Jesse, back to your career. Um, um, I'll try to get it out before she remembers another credit. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Okay, so the two, yeah. so the other one that you've got. Oh, yeah, the out, other one same. is like a World War II drama about Marcel Marceau, the mime. Oh, yes. And yeah. you play Marcel Marceau? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how was that? Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he's an interesting character. Um, and uh, But the what's what's even more remarkable is that during the war, he saved hundreds of children, you know, kind of using his artistry to entertain, quiet, and save these children, you know, um, bringing these kids across the border. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. Wow. It's like kind of um, shows him like a, a initially as kind of like this fledgling uh, artist doing like kind of small one man shows. And then over the course of the movie, he develops his skill. And by the end, he's he's close to what we think of him now. Which is the only movie in which Marcel Mosso has the only line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the Mel Brooks movie. Um, what is it called? Silent, Silent movie. movie. Silent movie. And his yeah. line is? None. None. Well done. Yeah. There we go. You can have the pop. Oh, you've got it already. Thanks. Very good. <laughs> Image of Poots, Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Six minutes to four o'clock. This is Five Live. It was a chat we did a few days ago. And listening back to that, I hadn't realised that Imogen Poots gives the ending of the film away. And then says, it's a bit of a tough watch. It's a bit of a struggle. (laughs) It's a bit of a struggle. And then she didn't know that Jesse 
Hasn't watched any of the films. I know, I felt like you really should have at that point have left the room so they could have this out. But Vivarium, which you'll review in a couple of weeks' time, is one of those movies where you really do have to see the finished thing because it makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he will have seen it while he was looping and everything, but yeah, it's... it's, uh... Anyway, Vivarium will be reviewed in a couple of weeks once it's out. Yeah. I'd say. So, can I now do a review? Take it away. Five to four. Film that's out this week, so Escape from Pretoria, which um, you've probably uh, come across Daniel Radcliffe, who's been doing an awful lot of publicity for this. Um, True Life uh, thriller, co-written and directed by Franz Sanna, based on a book, Inside Out, Escape from Pretoria Prison, by Tim Jenkins. Um, He was arrested in apartheid-era South Africa with Stephen Lee after being caught using small explosive devices to distribute anti-apartheid leaflets. The devices weren't dangerous, but the leaflets were considered to be, and uh, it was sent to prison. Here's a clip. The Republic of South Africa versus Timothy Jenkins and Stephen Lee. My commendation to the prosecution. Very well put case. The retrieval of 17 custom-built devices for 26 separate bombings is no small thing. But laying out the most pernicious aspects of this ANC ideology, that all races are equal and all this sort of thing, has been the strongest part of your case. And if I'm to understand it correctly, one of the defendant's fathers is an eminent pharmacologist and the other a scholar in the humanities. So they are sent to prison for lengthy sentences and in the prison, uh, immediately when they get there, they meet up with, you know, a other people who've already been uh, in, in prison for some time, including Ian Hart as Dennis Goldberg. And uh, our central character, Tim Jenkins, who's played by Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel Weber plays Stephen Lee, immediately feels that there is a, a, a duty to try to escape. That that's actually their, that what they have to do is they have to confound the regime in, in any way at all. And the way they have to do this is by trying to escape. But clearly the prison is very, very high security and escaping is not going to be very easy, except... They devise this plan, which is making keys, because they're everywhere they go, they're behind locked doors. Well, how do you get around the locked door? Well, you make a key. How do you make a key? You look at the keys hanging on the guard's belt, and you attempt to create facsimiles of those keys from any material that is available to you, other than the, the material that you'd use for making a key. Is one marvellous moment at which somebody says, there's a reason keys are made out of metal. Now... Firstly, it's a true story. And if it wasn't a true story, you'd just go, I'm sorry, I'm not buying this at all. Um, The second thing is, I have this theory about movies, which is that you can tell how good a movie is by how well it overcomes its flaws. Okay, so at the beginning of the film, because it's a bunch of people doing some quite complicated accents, I thought, okay, this is a bunch of people doing some quite complicated accents. And occasionally it sounds a bit like a kind of like an accent salad. And then about... 20 minutes into the film, I realised that I had stopped caring about the fact that it was people doing accents. And I think the the greatest endorsement of the film is to say that the things that are wrong with it didn't bother me. Because it is imperfect. But it doesn't matter because the things it gets right, it gets right enough that you just forget about all the other things. And the thing that it gets right is the 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 really intense tension of this plan to escape by doing something that seems so completely, un, you know, it just think that can't possibly work. And 
it's I mean we've seen many sort of prison breakout movies and it's all to do with how much you invest firstly in the characters and secondly how much you invest in the particular situation they're in and I know that when something is a true story in fact funnily enough I heard an interview with Daniel Radcliffe in which he said that in the course of the movie they had to make what they were doing even more complicated because in fact in in real life the solution that they came up with was, was one of them happened you know happened to be very very good at looking and then drawing so you believe in the characters, you believe in their situation, you forget about the things that are wrong and the things that are shonky, you forget about the accents, and you get completely swept up in the, frankly, quite nail-biting tension of what becomes a I-can't-believe-this-is-actually-happening prison break movie. I, and I think that's, a, that's a genuinely a great endorsement. The film is stronger than any of its flaws, so they don't matter, and that, for me is what defines a movie that's working when you don't care about the things that are wrong with it. And we've seen many Prison Break movies where they steal keys or someone gives yeah, them a key. but I haven't seen this before, and they, it's true. Actually, just remember the way it looks. Astonishing. What are you going to review in the next hour? A whole load of stuff coming up, including Military Wives, Sulphur and White, and much, much more. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.